Vermont Viewpoint is a public affairs program produced and funded by WDEV and the Radio Vermont Group. We welcome listener feedback. Email your comments to vtviewpoint at radiovermont.com. From WDEV Radio in Waterbury, Vermont, welcome to Vermont Viewpoint, the live radio show where we talk to everyone building the new Vermont and protecting the old one. I'm Kevin Ellis in the chair and at the mic where we take you behind the headlines to explain how Vermont and the nation really work. And to do that, we talk with guests in Vermont and around the country of all kinds with different points of view. Our goal, as always, exploration and insight. It's Friday, February 24th, the seventh week of the legislative session in Montpelier. And today we have a very special show. Yes, we will go to Washington, D.C. at 10 a.m. for our political update with Bob Ney. And yes, at 10.15, we will talk to Seven Days reporter Ann Wallace-Allen about the increasingly controversial proposal by the state colleges to do away with the physical books at the libraries and eliminate some sports programs. And yes, we will open the phones at 10.30 to discuss all of this. But our focus today for the next hour is the Montpelier Valentine's Day Phantom. As always, we take your calls, 244-1777, and your emails at vtviewpoint at radiovermont.com. Let's jump right in. Every year in Montpelier, as we begin to emerge from the darkness of January, something happens and it happens on Valentine's Day, Valentine's Day, and it's truly magical and often not talked about. It just kind of happens. We all wake up on Valentine's Day and discover that every storefront and building in Montpelier is plastered with red hearts. Nothing super fancy, but the hearts warm your heart for sure and give us an emotional boost as we start to think about spring. When it happens, I, I forget that it happens every year, but when it does happen, I think kind of think of Santa's elves working away all year to make children happy. The Valentine's Day Phantom, some call him him or her or they the bandit, operating in the dead of night, a guerrilla operation citywide, evading the authorities and public unmasking. For years, the identity of this operation has been a secret. Who is it? What is it? So I thought this deserves investigation. And I asked our WDEV investigative reporting team to look into this and report back. In the wake of last week's actions by the Phantom, the community deserves answers. We cannot allow this to continue without knowing the truth about this subterranean dead of night program. So today we bring you some but not all of the answers. We will interview a series of guests about this chicanery. How did, how does it work? When did it start? And what does it mean to the citizens of Mark Pelier? We will be joined by a variety of guests, but the first is Peter Nielsen, former Montpelier resident, arts presenter, uh, and uh, activist who has lived through who lived through the many early years of the Phantom's activities, uh, and we will also be joined in a few minutes by Montpelier ninth grader Embry Erickson, who has grown up watching the Phantom's activities year after year. So, Peter Nielsen, welcome to Vermont Viewpoint. Thank you. It's uh, nice to be back in Vermont. 
at least on the radio here. So uh, Peter Peter left us in Montpelier, and he's been living in Rockland, Maine, for the uh, past few years. But it was drawn to my attention that you are something of an expert about the uh, the Phantom. Well, perhaps I, I came to uh, you know my family, my wife and I moved to uh, Montpelier in 1992, very in- intentionally about. We looked around and we said, this is the place we want to live because it's very quiet, but it just has this feeling, you know, something's about to happen here. And we liked it. And so we moved in and, and I became really interested in all the art that were happening in uh, Montpelier at that time. And it, it's much different than it was when we got there, whatever that was, 31 years ago. But there were things happening that uh, I hadn't seen in some of the other places I've lived. Uh, Nicholas Hecht had the Peerless Theater. Uh, Dragon Dance Theater was coming out of Middlesex. There was Lost Nation. And these were all very homegrown, you know, kind of art uh, events that were, you know, I had just been coming from a couple years in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And uh, you didn't see kind of homegrown things there. You saw institutionally produced things. So when we got to Montpelier, there was a genuine sense that people actually make things happen here. And, uh, and sure enough, over the 25 years that we lived there, I began to watch all kinds of people doing, you know, uh, you know, creating things. Uh, Selena Moore from, uh, East Montpelier was creating musical theater. And, uh, and then Taryn Chaplin created Ice on Fire. And I was involved with helping First Night Montpelier get started. And then, uh, uh, Janice Walrafen and her, Tribe built up, you know, the uh, All Species Day. And these were all kinds of events that I took a, you know, not an academic interest in, but I was very serious about the way they all work together and the seasonality that that created for what life in Montpelier was all about. And, uh, and tracking these events through the year, and it was, it was also kind of amazing that they became, you know, absolute rituals for the community. And uh, all the, you know, this whole set of events. And then when the Valentine Phantom, you know, emerged, it was unique in that it hadn't been publicized, expected, and you weren't going to it or buying a ticket or planning for it. It just happened. And that was a, a another twist. So it was all these things that I became very interested in, tried to understand the history of, and tried to develop a sense of uh, what this meant for a community and for community art, and for the original creation of them by the community. So I kind of took a, a strong interest in trying to understand it. Um, and guess who just uh, lit up our phone lines? Uh, Embry Erickson. And I have. I hope I have the bio right, Embry. Uh, a ninth grader at Montpelier High School, which means uh, your entire life has been spent uh, in the presence of the Valentine's Day Phantom and Montpelier, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me on. So, Emery, let's go to you because we know you are tight on time uh, before the police come and arrest you for truancy and not being in, in <laughs> class. Um, w- tell us about the Montpelier Phantom and what what it's meant to you over the years. Um, <coughs> I mean, I, I mean, it's been here as long as I can remember. I've been in Vermont since... I was a very small baby, but um, it's kind of just like a, a really cool thing that to spread the love to everybody and to kind of 
connect the community. And it's something that like, I haven't really seen anywhere else. And so it's always been something that makes, makes Montpelier feel unique to me. Um, Peter Nielsen, uh, who, and I, I, I failed to uh, tell the audience that you and your wife, the painter, Allison Goodwin, lived in Montpelier from 92 to 90, uh, 2017 at the corner of Liberty and Loomis. Um, what, what, uh, when, when I wake up on Valentine's Day and see it, I, I remember, I always forget that this thing happens. And it just magically appears. And I think for me, at least, that's, that's part of the fun of it is that it just, uh, you alluded to it earlier. It just seems to happen. Talk to us more about that. Yeah. Well, um, you know, I remember the first year it, it, it happened and it just sort of, uh, you went downtown. I was like, whoa, there's these hearts and they're all kind of everywhere. And the first year there weren't as many as what came to happen over the next several years, but still it was a sort of citywide installation. And it was like, whoa, somebody, it's a cold night. Somebody went out here and did all this. And you had a sense that they planned it because that doesn't happen all, you know, it, it, it took some effort. And you had that first year, and I'm certain it was 2002, it was, uh, it was, you didn't think it was just going to go on. You didn't think it would happen again the next year. You thought was, that, that happened. That was a one-time thing. So right. then over the next couple of years, it kind of grew and it seemed to multiply by thousands of hearts every year. And so it was like, whoa, how is this happening? And I can remember a couple of times, you know, trying to go downtown and see if you could see it happening. No matter how late you stayed up, you couldn't see it happening or how early you got up, it was already done. And there was just this sense of what's going on here, right. you know, and, uh, and how, how are they, how are they getting this done? And it was like, you, it was just sort of like, and the whole town was like, what, you know, how, who, what, and, and nobody could figure it out, but everybody was kind of seeming to get into it and it just kept growing and growing. Um, and that's the, you know, that was how it got started. And Embry, how old were you at that time? Two? Uh, well, you weren't even born I, yet. Yeah, probably <laughs> not. No. Well, Embry, so, um, uh, you know, as much as we have tried to find out the identity of, of the phantom, um, it, it, we, we were unsuccessful and, uh, it's probably better that way, but I do, you're right. It's kind of like staying up late, uh, for Santa Claus to try to catch him in the middle of the night. We never seem to be able to do that, but the presents are always on the window, uh, the next morning. I mean, I think it's kind of, it doesn't really matter who the, who or what the phantom is. And I don't think you need, I don't think anybody needs to know because it doesn't need to be one person. One person shouldn't be the phantom. I should, it should just be the feeling, a collective feeling of waking up on Valentine's day and seeing all these hearts just scattered across Montpelier. <laughs> oh, that's fantastic. It could, it could be anyone. I, I uh I have this image of 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 a, of a secret copy machine in someone's basement worrying for going round and round for hours and hours at a time and I and then I think to myself okay how do they affix the valentines to the 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 window do they use rubber cement do they use tape and i don't know why but i've never actually gone up to a window and investigated but but as you say i'm not sure it matters 
you know, oh, go on, Embry. I didn't mean to interrupt you. Go ahead, Embry. Oh, I, I mean, if, if a question you're asking is how they put them up, it's just four pieces of tape. I mean, it's, they put it on wax paper, so really easy to just put it up, you know? Uh-huh. Makes it very efficient. If you go around, if you, if you go around looking around, you get these clues, you know, and you see, because they're all, it seems to be they have a, a system and a process and they know what they're doing. And, and you look in the trash can to kind of figure out that you can kind of kind of unravel it a little bit. But the, the whole thing is, um, you know, it, as I've come to understand it and I get a little kind of like uh, work trying to, trying to kind of put it in like, what is this and how would you describe it? It's a, it's a public arts um, project, you know, and, and public art is really no different from any other kind of art except in the way it's created and the way it's experienced, uh, which is, by, you know, created by the public and experienced by the public. So there's a, and it can do anything. And it's, it's known to, there's all kinds of great public art. You know, John Claude and Christo created the gates in Central Park and wrap buildings and fabric all around the world to, to you know, to make different uh, points about locations and places and to address certain things. And, and, uh, and, and, the world experienced what they did and they were sort of very serious about their intentionality of it. And they talked about it um, in that in order to make public art, you actually have to go through the entire process of involving the community and to plan for it in the community and to make sure that the community experiences it the way it's intended. And somehow the Valentine's Phantom is doing all that kind of like, in the underground, right? Like nobody knows how, but there has to be, but their process and their engagement in it, you know, couldn't have gone on for these 20 something years unless they had figured out all these ways to get things done. Right. You know, so, but, you know, public art is also known to, you know, transform the a landscape and to draw attention to the significance of that environment and to question assumptions about it and to, you know, to kind of bring together a collective experience. And so the way I've always looked at the Valentine's Phantom is it's not just whoever's out there putting those hearts up that is part of the Valentine's Phantom. It's everybody who experiences it and sees it and reacts to it. And the entire community, therefore, is part of the Valentine's Phantom project. We, uh, um, we, it doesn't matter which side you're looking at it from. We have a call, and we are going to bring into the show uh, Karen McCadden, who is um, famous, infamous, talented uh, as a poet, and she is calling into the show. Welcome, Karen, to Vermont Viewpoint. Thank you so much. Good morning. So tell us about this, uh, the well, mystery of the phantom. So for me, for 28 years, I was an English teacher at Montpelier High School, and I just wanted to, like, I just can't stop smiling thinking about Valentine's morning and taking a different road through town. I would always skirt around the outside to get to work on time, you know, and on Valentine's morning, I would always drive through downtown, of course, um, and I would go so slowly, and no matter what, even though it was, you know, this awful time of winter where winter seems endless, 
um, I would just smile and smile and smile because there is this love all over the city. Um, and we'd always look for, you know, where the banners were. There are banners that would be put in different locations, you know, to give love to people, it seemed like. Um, and it just was really uplifting to, to see all that in the morning as a teacher. And then we'd come to school all abuzz talking about it. Yeah. <clears throat> well, um, now I've got you and Embry on the same phone line, so you might not be able to hear each other. But Embry, um, t- tell us, it's not just the, uh, the pasted hearts on windows. There are banners involved in this uh, operation, right? Uh, I mean, at least from what I've seen, there's just, there'll be a big, a big heart, much bigger than the little, the little pieces of paper, probably like the size of my torso, uh, maybe a little bit bigger. They're just big and they're, they're a lot more colorful. They have designs on them. Yeah. Well, the audience may be hearing my phone and computer dinging in the background. That's because, uh, everyone's calling in and, and now they're texting me about this thing. There's something about the Phantom that uh, gets people excited. Uh, Karen, you tell us more about that. I, I I have the same feeling. I mean, it's 11 degrees outside right now, and it's sort of half sleeting, half snowing, and it's gray. Uh, talk about that for a minute. Yeah, I think, you know, the, the, it's the time of year when light feels like it's just not coming through to us, and there's this feeling that we're enduring a season that's long and cold and just feeling like someone's watching out for the community, um, this sort of mysterious visitor who's reminding us all that we're loved is, you know, as much as that sounds cheesy, like we're all loved, but we are, you know, and we, we feel it on that morning especially. Um, and I remember a year that a banner was placed on the high school and, you know, schools need love, and it's a tough time to be in schools these past few decades thinking about um, all the things that we have to think about in schools. And just knowing that we were remembered, that our building was plastered in hearts, was really beautiful. Karen, you uh, you taught creative writing at Montpelier High School. Uh, tell us about your time there. You're no longer there? Yeah, no, I, I left in um, uh, a couple of years ago. I teach now at the Center for Technology, Essex. I, my family moved up to the Chittenden County area. Ah, the big city. Yeah. Well, wow. I'm looking at I'm looking at our producer Danny through the window. He lives in Essex, and I asked him about the Phantom, and uh, he knew nothing about it. So Embry, and then Peter, can you let's go back a step and talk about how this came to be? You know, what are your earliest memories of the Phantom? Ambry? I mean, it's been happening since long before I was born. Uh, and it's kind of, it's kind of always been a thing, uh, since I've, you know, been conscious. But it's kind of been just this thing growing up. I've been involved in it for four years now that it's just like when I was little, it's just so cool, you know? It was so, like, wonderful and crazy. I had no clue how it happened or really what was going on, but I just thought it was this amazing thing. And now I've been involved with it for a few years, helping spread the love. And, uh, and Peter, um, 
go back and talk about this as a public art project because uh, I've always thought of it as a as a lone guerrilla fighter in the in the middle of the night. But there's something else going on in the way of public art. Yeah. So I first noticed it in 2002, and uh, and it wasn't the same degree as I said earlier. It's not, it wasn't the same degree of an installation. It was I don't know probably a couple thousand hearts, but it wasn't the I don't know how many are up there now, but there's Tried to estimate it is five, seven thousand hearts. You know, so it was a small installation in that year, two thousand two, and then it seemed to like they seemed to learn something, and it grew. And when you were doing the arts back then, you know, it was a lot of effort, and some things didn't actually, you know, you couldn't sustain some things. I was on the board of Onion River Arts Council, which I don't even think exists anymore, and there was this sort of midsummer festival. It's a hard thing; you had to get volunteers and try to, you know, get the money together and produce this thing. And then somehow somebody just produces this incredible experience in the middle of the night and nobody knows what's going on. So it was, you know, from an, as an arts producer, there was a little bit of frustration, like who's doing this and how come everything else is so hard, you know? Right. But over the next few years, as it grew, I think it was, um, I got up early one morning, I think it was 2006 or seven, trying to get up, see if I could, you know, see it happen. And it was already done like, you know, 630 in the morning, six in the morning, whatever it was. And I went down, and the seven columns of the state house each had this giant, must have been like a big 12-foot-high banner. And they were like canvas banners with hand-painted giant 10-foot-tall red hearts on all seven columns. And I went up and checked it out, and they were, you know, somebody had, I mean, I don't know what kind of scaffolding they needed. I mean, somebody, how did that happen, Right. And, uh, but there it was, and there was just a small clutch of people. The sun was just kind of coming up, you know, comes up kind of late at that point. And, uh, all of a sudden at like 7.01 a.m., the facilities crew of the state house must have just arrived for work and they, they just kind of came on it like Navy SEALs and dismantled it in like three minutes. And, uh, <laughs> but it did, it did, I was like, whoa, that was fast. I just, I just saw that happen, you know? And then, but the next year they were successful in somehow, the state house must have decided this is okay. We're going to let it go because the next year they stayed up all day. Wow. Uh, but that year there was this massive blizzard and the town was kind of shut down. So maybe the facilities crews like took a snow day and didn't weren't able to attack it. Well, we will. But those, we we will be talking later in the show to official Montpelier because uh, we're going to put in a call to Bill Fraser, the city manager, to to try to find out the truth about why this phantom is allowed to continue to uh, uh, do the deed uh, throughout the town. We have to take another break. Uh, Karen Embry and Peter Nielsen, feel free to stay with us. We understand you have schedules if you need to go. Uh, we understand that as well. But uh, we're going to come back after the break and keep talking about the Montpelier Valentine's Day Phantom. It's Vermont Viewpoint. I'm Kevin Ellis, and you're listening to WDEV. Did you know that Radio Vermont Group Digital Services can create videos including drone footage? We've even won awards for our videos. If you'd like to learn more and see examples of our work, go to rvgdigital.com. Radio Vermont Group, we're more than just radio. We're back. I'm Kevin Ellis. It's Free TV Viewpoint on WDEV, and we are talking about the Montpelier Valentine's Day Phantom. Our guests are Peter Nielsen 
of now of Rockland, Maine, but a longtime resident of Montpelier who was there at the beginning, and Emery Erickson, a ninth grader at Montpelier High School. Uh, to the both of you, let's go to Emery first. Um, I have was just told, and I'm being texted on my phone by people who say that the Phantom has expanded. Uh, to Northfield and Roxbury, and I meant to tell you guys that I've even seen the hearts over in Barry. Uh, Embry, w- what is going on here? I honestly, I was not aware of that. I don't really, uh, don't really get the chance to travel to those places super often. That's really cool to me, though. I mean, it's it's an awesome thing that happens in Montpelier, and it, I love that it's expanding out to other towns, other cities. Yeah, it's uh, – but gosh, Peter Nielsen, that's that's a lot of activity in the middle of the night. <laughs> yeah, well, I, you know, I can remember back, I think it was 2011, and what was that big hurricane? Was it Irene that came through and yeah. blew up Vermont? Yeah. And there was a whole statewide movement to um, – you know, the resiliency project or whatever it was called at the time, you know, uh, where everybody in Vermont kind of got behind uh, around kind of rebuilding all those uh, kind of river villages that had gotten blown up. And over in Waitsfield, they, um, the covered bridge uh, in that, over the Matter River had gotten, like, knocked off its uh, foundation. Luckily, it didn't go down like some of the other ones did, but it had the whole village had gotten kind of wiped out there. Uh, and... Um, the Green Cup was devastated, and every the whole seriously, Wakefield was kind of racked, and that was in the fall. And then I think that was the first year that we observed the Phantom getting out of Montpelier, and uh, and on February fifteenth, like right in the middle of the Mad River, on the side of the covered bridge, was one of those giant heart banners that um, was like the one that had been on the State House and that were popping up. So. You know, thinking about what Karen said earlier, you know, there's a, a feeling that this thing creates of like letting everybody out there know that you are loved, you know? And I think that seeing that pop up over the Mad River at that place that had been devastated, um, was a, a chance for the project to grow, you know, and to spread a little further than downtown Montpelier. And, uh, and then yeah, it, it started popping up, uh, left and right. I've seen it, you know, attempts at it you know, in other places in northern New England, too. And sometimes, because I drive around all over northern New England, back and forth between Vermont and the uh, coast, and uh, every once in a while you'll see, like, one of those Montpelier hearts, and they're distinct, in, like, somebody's window in the middle of nowhere north of Route 2. (laughs) And it's like, where did, you know, how'd that get there? And it'll be, like, in August, you know? and uh, But it's distinctly a Montpelier heart. So it has spread, and uh, and you know it's amazing the things gone on for as long as it has. Who knows what the future holds for it, where it's going to end up? Embry Erickson, uh, what as an old timer, I don't get over to Montpelier High School as much as I should. What what's the? Are there a lot of hearts over at Montpelier High School uh, last week? Uh, definitely, yeah. Uh, on the the main uh, entranceway, though, it was covered in hearts. Wow. I, I think it said, um, uh, I think they spelled out with the heart, uh, you're cute. <laughs> <laughs> and, and absolutely no indication, uh, about who's behind this. Uh, it just happens magically. Basically. Yeah. 
and uh, and and do they sneak around the backside uh, and plaster the school? And and do you more importantly, do you talk about this with your classmates and your teachers? Um, I think not quite as much because everybody has like as we used to because everybody has experienced this so many times. Yeah. But it is definitely something that is mentioned, and it's definitely something that we all kind of experience together. Yeah. Well, you know. Those years that the uh, banners after the state house banners went up, they started. You could start seeing and spotting them in other places, and there's the big banners each year in a unique place, and that became something for a while. There was a year that there was one like up in the belfry, the top of city hall, you know, and up in the top of uh, college hall, and then hanging off the big cliff on what is it, Cliff Street, that winds up the backside of Hubbard Park, and these banners would be in the most like how'd they get there kind of places. And then a few years later, Union Elementary School kids started getting involved. And uh, I haven't, my kids were well out of Union Elementary School uh, by the time this happened. So, but my understanding is they're given one of those sort of Montpelier uh, heart shapes, it's just the outline, and every kid in the school um, colors it in uniquely. And then they take all, whatever it is, a couple hundred of them. And they leave them out for the phantom to take the package and distribute. And the phantom puts them up with all the other hearts at the lowest row so that these little five, six-year-old short little people can go around and find their hearts. And, and the school takes all the kids downtown on Valentine's Day to go find their hearts. Oh, so boy. it has had, like, multiple kind of, like, evolutions, you know, from just the the pieces of paper to the banners to the school kids, you know, making these things to, you know, like, I don't even know what else happened. And that's the thing you go look for. Like right. what's going to be the new, the new twist and when, and will they be able to sustain it? So it's like this high wire act of like wondering, you know, what you're going to see uh, the next year or if they even show up. Uh, the, you know? the mystery deepens. Embry, before we have to let you go, last question, because I know that the truancy officers are, are after you. Um, uh, these things also magically come down um, from the windows. Uh, do you think the phantom takes them down or do the shopkeepers uh, take them down themselves? Um, I couldn't tell you, uh, but I assume that it's that it's the people, shopkeepers, who take them down. Right. Uh, that seems the most logical, I guess. But, I mean, it's all a mystery. I uh, yeah, no yeah I, I drive around, and, and uh, one day they're kind of magically gone. I mean, you see a few around, but uh, I, guess it's the, uh, I guess it's the price that the shopkeepers pay for having such a joyous day on Valentine's Day. Embry Erickson... You're really, I know you got to get back to class or other obligations. You're really kind uh, to join us. Thank you very much. Yeah, thank you for having me on. Sure. Uh, Peter Nielsen, uh, any information about how these things get taken down? No, um, I don't know. I mean, I, I would watch, it, and it was funny because sometimes, you know, you see people show up and there was the Capitol Theater was one place that, you know, the minute they opened, they took them all down. And it was like, it was almost like funny to watch because there were other places around town that would collect them from like the ones that had blown off the street and put them up on there so they would get more. So some people just loved them. And it was just the occasional places that, you know, kind of like didn't want them up there. But what I noticed 
you know, um, over the years. Cause again, I was kind of like trying to kind of understand this thing and study it. And, uh, and I noticed that like for the next couple of days, you get these real windy weeks some years and there'd be people out there you would watch and you could, you know, if you, you didn't know who they were, but there'd be people out there that were like meticulously kind of like seem to be going up down the sidewalk, picking them up and like not letting it become a litter problem and stuff. And I was like, I think this phantom has an actual like cleanup crew. Yeah. You know? Yeah, exactly. And, uh, and, um, so it seems to be sort of like a well organized all the way through, you know, but, um, but I think that they, uh, were probably, probably concerned about making sure they didn't create just a big littered mess, you know? Um, so they probably, you know, made that part of their process. And, uh, but also I see when I come to Montpelier in the summer, you can always spot one. It's like someone's kept one up somewhere. Right. You know? And right. in fact, there was one, you know, one year, I don't know what year it was, uh, around 2000, maybe nine, 10 ish. I don't know. Um, could have been later, but I remember my wife and it was a beautiful, like 60 degree February 14th. And my wife and I were walking up Hubbard park and coming back down and, he, and we were looking like straight out at the city, as you know, that beautiful view you get. And, uh, they had been the heading into winter. They had been re, um, blading the steeple of the Methodist church downtown. Oh, that's right. Yeah. And, and on February, uh, 14th, it was such a beautiful day that he, the guy's name was Jay Southgate, the steeple Jack. And, uh, and you saw his crew, they were all working on it. And I was like, wow, it's kind of February. And these guys are out there doing that. But yeah, it's a beautiful day. I can see where they want to get a jump on the job. And we sat there watching them, um, staying up in the, on, you know, just kind of like a beautiful view, looking at downtown. And all of a sudden it was pretty clear. They were actually making a red heart out of slate on the front of the church. And, and, and over the next day they built, all those hearts are slate that are now around the uh, top of the Methodist church in town. And, uh, we were like, Whoa. And I wonder, you know, could it be that they, if they, uh, if it has any connection to the Valentine phantom. And sure enough, you know, I was a while later, but Jay Southgate said in the paper, you know, I thought read at the times Argus that, you know, we, that he was trying to come up with a design that would be befitting of this place. And because of Montpelier's identity, as this uh, city of hearts, he thought that that was something that should go on that people and the church should read. And, you know, that's going to be there for a long time. Wow. I did not know that. that boy, I'll tell you, if there's ever anything that makes you not want to leave Montpelier and move to Florida in the middle of winter, uh, that's it. Uh, Peter, we have to take another break. Um, and we're going to come back after this and we're going to play some a phone call to the city of Montpelier city manager Bill Fraser to find to get to the bottom of this and why the authorities uh, allow this gorilla phantom to uh, continue this practice in Montpelier. The mystery deepens. We'll be back. It's Vermont Viewpoint. I'm Kevin Ellis, your host, and you're listening to WDEV. We're back on Vermont Viewpoint. I'm Kevin Ellis. It's WDEV. We're talking about the Montpelier Valentine's Phantom. We are asking the tough questions, and you are getting the tough answers. And uh, we're going to keep digging into this mystery and the uh, the fact that Montpelier storefronts are plastered with these hearts every year. And you might think, you might think that the city manager of Montpelier would be concerned with the big issues, 
water systems, road conditions, the Elks Club uh, property, housing. But what we really are having him on the show is is to question him about the Montpelier Phantom. Welcome, Bill Fraser. Well, hello, Kevin. What a what a lovely opportunity to speak with you. <laughs> so, okay, this is a blight on the community, and why are the authorities allowing this year after year? Well, I take great umbrage to the fact that it's a blight. I could, you know, most people here really enjoy it and love seeing the heart, and it brings us a little color and love and togetherness in the middle of the winter and reminds us that we're all humans in this world together. Okay. As a as a foreigner from East Montpelier, I 100% agree with you. There is nothing more fun than uh, driving down the hill uh, and seeing seeing the result of the Phantom's work. So, but give us some answers here, Mr. Manager. I will do the best that I can. How do you deal with this? You wake up one day and the entire downtown is plastered. Then do you, do your public works crew have to deal with this? Do you have to have a staff meeting to say, do we take this stuff down? Do we leave it up? How long do we leave it up? How do you manage this as a manager? Um, you know, the, the aftermath is not really a big deal. We find most building owners will remove the hearts when they're ready to. Some do it almost immediately, and others uh, leave them up for a while. We we like to leave the ones that are on City Hall up for a while until they don't look so great. Right. Uh, but, yeah, we don't really – I mean, obviously, some end up in streets, and we try to get those picked up. But really, uh, it's, it's pretty much a self-managing uh, event. Um, we have Peter Nielsen on the line. He just said the magic words, Peter, uh, a kind of a self-managing event. I, I find that that is just – I don't know what that is, but there's magic to it. Yeah, I think I would call that an open-source public art project. The the ability to participate in it, the ability to uh, make it happen, and the ability to experience it, it it's all – there's like no intellectual property there. There's no sort of rules. It's all – Everybody finds a way to engage in it, and it it happens for it's gone on longer than a generation now. It seems like it's probably not people who started it anymore, and it just seems to be you know if you look at how like open source software works and you look at how this project works, it just feels open source, you know, and it it belongs to the city, and the, it's the sort of heart of the city. You know? Bill Fraser, uh, how long has this been going on? That you know of? Oh, uh, I'm going to say over 20 years. I can't remember the exact first year, but I'm going to say 20 to 25 years, somewhere in that span. Right. And and uh, you uh, you just drive into town uh, and, and go to your office in the morning, and there they are. There, you know, there's nothing there they are. you know. Yeah. Well, you know, I. We've been trying to figure it out. Um, you know, I, I've engaged the police department to try to catch these people. And, <laughs> you know, it's weird. One year, one year they actually had something hanging from City Hall. And I don't know how that happened. Um, I'm beginning to think it really is a supernatural Santa <laughs> and not people at all. Because you would think that, you know, we have an excellent police department. And you would think they would be able to catch these people putting things on private property. And they just can't. So, uh, you know, it's been going on for so long now that I think 
I, I really do think it maybe is a magical Valentine phantom. I, I met the new chief, uh, Eric, police chief Eric at a basketball game recently, and I, I should have pestered him about this, but, uh, we were. Well, he's been on the force over 25 years, and he would have certainly pulled plenty of night shifts, and I, you so, know, I have quizzed him and prior chiefs, and, you know, basically taking them to task for their incompetence, not being able to catch this. So he is a, so the police chief is a co-conspirator in this project. I, I, no, that's not fair. I think, um, you know, that implies that they know and they've, they've seen, observed people doing things. <laughs> I think they just magically appeared. Like, you know, one minute they're there, next, you know, one minute they're not there, next minute they're there. Oh, it God. truly is magic. Oh, God. Okay. God, that's the highlight of the day. I, I've got water, tears running down my eyes. Okay, Mr. Manager, uh, what are you going to do about this in the future to bring this under control? I am going to enjoy it every year that it comes out and uh, and look at the smiles on people's faces and realize it's one of the things that – one of the many things that makes Montpelier a great place. i I got to say um, – as a political junkie, I think about you often because I cannot think of a harder job than the city manager of any city in this country uh, because you do – you have to do the dirty work of keeping uh, the roads plowed, the trash picked up. Uh, the, the list is endless and it never ends, but it really must be in all seriousness a, a, just a great joy to see this unfold every year. Well, thank you for recognizing uh, what we in professional municipal management do. And yes, it is, uh, you know, as Peter mentioned, this is something that came from uh, either a supernatural being or some very clever community members and has grown and passed on through the years. And I suspect he's right that if it is human, that it's passed on from, you know, maybe the originators on to other people. And uh, people love it. Uh, Every year, there are you know people are taking pictures, smiling. It seems to come at just the right time, uh, you know, middle of February in Vermont. Yeah, no kidding. Well, uh, long live the uh, long live the Montpelier Phantom. I, it's I've, I've never done a show in which my personal text uh, uh, lights up and the phones light up on this show uh, the way it has, Peter. Um, all let's uh, let's all hope that this thing continues, right? I think it will. I, think, I don't think that, you know, I've come to think of the Valentine Phantom as just this feeling, this feeling you get, this phantom-like feeling that kind of comes to you when you don't expect it and leaves when you wish it didn't. Um, and it's just this feeling that you're in the right place at the right time with the right people, and you just feel kind of just blessed by that. And so it's a phantom-like emotion that just sweeps over you, and I think that the, whoever's doing the Valentine Phantom in Montpelier kind of figured out a way to generate that feeling in people and to be able to make it happen on an annual basis. And so, but that phantom-like feeling, whether it, whether those hearts go up in Montpelier or not, I think that that feeling will always be present in that city. Yeah. It certainly works for me. You know, Kevin, I'd, you know, I'd add to that. You may recall, you may recall, Kevin, a few years ago, um, the hearts were not out one morning. And uh, people were heartbroken, but by the afternoon they were covered. Oh come on! That is true. <laughs> so I think you know to Peter's point that uh, this is something that will continue because perhaps it was that uh, the, the original phantom had 
had moved on and uh, a, a new phantom just said this has to be done. Yeah. And um, and it has continued. So who knows? Well, it's 11 degrees outside and uh, dark. And uh, this is one of the more enjoyable things of the day is to talk to you guys about this. Just, Peter Nielsen. Just remember the day that when we had the three-foot Valentine's Day snowstorm several years ago. Right. The hearts were still out. Yeah. Well, uh, Bill Fraser, uh, thank you very much for enlightening us on this. And uh, let's hope we leave those uh, hearts up as long as we can until they're shredded and blowing in the streets. Thank you for joining us. Thank you, Kevin. Okay. Take care. And Peter Nielsen, uh, thank you so much for helping me uh, bring some light to this subject and some joy. Uh, we really appreciate you coming on as well. It was a blast. I really did kind of close my eyes, and I felt like I was in Montpelier all day last hour. So oh, fantastic. And okay. and special thanks to my dear friend and neighbor in East – well, she lives in Montpelier, actually. No, she's in East Montpelier. Uh, Mary Admasion, who uh, I called her with this idea, and uh, Mary is always the one. Mary is an artist of great talent and uh, – Montpelier booster of great renown and uh, together we kind of thought how do we how can we approach uh, this show and get some better information about the phantom long live the Montpelier phantom whoever you are or whoever they are uh, we are grateful uh, for what you do for this city and um, it's a great great joy to come into town and, and see those hearts uh, every once a year we're going to be back. Our thanks to Bill Fraser and Peter Nielsen for joining us, and also uh, thanks to Embry uh, Erickson for joining us, and um, to all our guests. Uh, we'll be back uh, on Vermont Viewpoint. I'm Kevin Ellis. We'll be back with Bob Nay from Washington, D.C. to talk about the news out of D.C. You're listening to WDEV. We are back. Moving from the Montpelier Phantom, which, by the way, there are phantom hearts on light poles in, Montp in uh, Waterbury as well. So the Montpelier Phantom is expanding, and uh, we will uh, be your source of news about that expansion. But we are now going to go to Washington, D.C. Welcome to Vermont Viewpoint. Uh, I'm Kevin Ellis, and our guest now is our Washington correspondent, Bob Ney, to bring us all things politics and government from D.C. Bob, welcome to the show. Well, thank you, Kevin. I'm curious. I'm going to tune in. Uh, I'm curious to hear about those. Are they lanterns, did you say? Or? No, they are. Uh, our, our downtown of our state capital is plastered every Valentine's Day with uh, with Xeroxed uh, hearts. Oh, okay. And they're, right. Yeah, and they are uh, they're plastered uh, on light poles in all the windows of all the shops. Oh, well, that's interesting. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So let's go uh, from there. Uh, to Ukraine, where uh, the Chinese have have uh, have uh, gotten themselves in the middle of uh, peace negotiations, demanding that there be uh, negotiations on a ceasefire uh, to the war over there. Well, we certainly know that Putin doesn't have a heart. You know, he has done atrocities in Ukraine. It's been a horrible situation. Now we're marking going into the second year, and I don't. This is probably done. Frankly, Kevin, probably because of the second year 
And uh, that's the announcement by China. They're calling for a ceasefire between Russia and Ukraine. This is pretty strong because as President Biden was in Warsaw, firming up our allies, you know, in his visit, of course, to Ukraine. Meanwhile, China was sending their top diplomat to meet face-to-face with Putin at that time. And I think probably this is the result. It's not like they're going to catch Putin off guard. They've talked to him. So we'll see what happens. But it's a big step. China, you know, getting in and saying, hey, ceasefire versus go for it. Uh, I I think that's a big step, hopefully, in the right direction for the Ukrainian people and the world. I see the hand of uh, Biden's Secretary of State Anthony Blinken in this. Uh, I don't. I'm not sure why, but uh, this this effort by the Biden administration to unite NATO and be uh, not an explicit, uh, be a supplier of arms to the Ukrainians, but not wanting to go toe to toe with the Russians, so this thing spins out of control. Uh, I wonder if Blinken is back-channeling with the Chinese, but that's way above my pay grade. Well, I'll tell you, you really brought up a very fascinating word that if people only knew about back-channeling, and I mean that because there are so many different back-channel issues that have happened over the years. I've actually been involved with one in the Clinton administration, and I know you remember the late Madeleine Albright and we were uh, staged to go together to the United Nations, be introduced when the new president, a moderate of Iran, was speaking. So that was a back-channel communication, for example. And it's happened with uh, other members of Congress, with presidents, their staff. And I think you're you're right in mentioning back-channel, and I think you're correct. And I don't have any proof of this, but I think you're correct in, in the fact that Blinken had some back-channeling or maybe his top staff and maybe the Chinese top staff. But, you know, I don't think it's ironical that Blinken just last week went to talk about the balloon with the Chinese uh, defense minister because that's been a sore subject. So I think this is all kind of falling in place through, through back channels to where this announcement came. So, yes, I think the hand of Blinken is in this. And we have to believe that that is a good thing. That uh, and I and I noticed by the way on the way in on the radio I was listening to a podcast about this subject with some politicos who were talking about the fact that the United States has maintained uh, lower level communications with the Russians. Uh, in fact, have a kind of a hotline uh, open with the Russians. Uh, we're obviously not talking to Putin, but there is communication going on so that this thing does not spin out of control. Yes, and look, the recent example, which is fascinating to a lot of people, uh, it was fascinating to me, but it wasn't a complete shock, was the announcement after the president's trip to the Ukraine that the Russians knew. Nobody else knew except Zelensky and his, his group, but the Russians knew. They were given a two- or three-hour heads-up because the president was going in on a train. And we would say, well, why did they tell Putin? You know, even Putin realizes you don't want to you know, accidentally or on purpose bomb the train that's got the President of the United States on it. That makes a whole different picture if that happens. So, yes, we still communicate through back channels. And and if we remember correctly with the uh, news reports, remember the Chinese two weeks ago wouldn't pick up, quote, the hotline. And that was disturbing. So the balloon diplomacy stopped that. Now they're communicating. And it's the same thing. The old... Um, 
her Jeff Kennedy, you know, saga started that with the with the hotline. Right. Right. And and with uh, Kennedy dispatching his brother, Bobby, to uh, yes. speak to uh, and ABC News. Oh, gosh, I can't remember his name. An ABC News correspondent to secretly negotiate in some restaurant with the Russians over the right. Cuban Missile Crisis. Um Boy, things were primitive in those days. Um, okay, let's, let's go to, uh, West Virginia and the train derailment. Uh, uh, former President Trump showed up there the other day and uh, did what we expect him to do, criticize the Biden response to the train derailment. But, uh, so presidential politics arrives in rural West Virginia. Right, uh, my father's I'm house sorry, in Ohio. My- Ohio. Yeah, my father's house and my children's house, we are 74 miles as the crow flies, 52 miles as the wind blows from that area. We're down in the Ohio Valley. In Steubenville, Ohio, the water was found to be contaminated. We're 20 miles or so down from Steubenville, and I mention that because that basin affects 5 million people as that water runs down the river. And this whole thing has just been, it's a disaster, but it's a disaster in the response. The governor of Ohio went in, and uh, what happened, uh, of, of course, was that Buttigieg was criticized because he didn't mention anything about East Palestine whatsoever. And uh, I think maybe eight days went on, and you know finally he mentioned it. So he had a lot of criticism. When he mentioned it, he got into the fact that the Trump administration had hollowed out a rule through executive order that would have helped with safety breaks. Well, Senator Vance of Ohio, Republican, came back, and and I did research this. There's a, it's not as easy as Trump. Uh, got a hold of the break rule and hollowed it out. It, it was hollowed out by the Obama administration, then by the Trump administration, and nobody put it back to where it should have been in the first place. So it's a lot of political sins and safety sins along the way. Having said all of that, uh, Pete Buttigieg, the director of transportation, did go into uh, into the uh, city, and, uh, and then he, he did a follow-up, and I, I I've always followed him. He did a follow-up where he took a picture of a reporter because he was walking in D.C. And you could tell just by that action. If you're seasoned, you've got reporters. They come up to you. You know how this is with the media. They come up to you. They they want to ask you questions. You might be on your private time. You just say, I'm, I'm on my private time. You walk away. He stopped to take a picture of the reporter. It's just kind of a – and I want to – not overplay it. It's kind of a weird reaction. This whole thing with Buttigieg has shocked us, uh, people in the media, of of why he just didn't address this head on. So a lot of time yet to go on this. Uh, people are back in their homes, but I've got to tell you, it's a, a very uh, stirring controversy uh, down here because uh, people just are not sure about their safety. And then I would throw this out here. If you were wanting to retire and move or downsize, who is going to buy your house in, in East Palestine? I, I got to say, there must be a better reason than this, but I got to say, I'm feeling a little cynical about the Biden uh, reaction, administration reaction to this. It, it seems uh, strange to me. Uh, it, it seems to me that there would be a, a more aggressive reaction just for the PR of it, just for the political PR of it. Right. When something gets to the level that this got to, and I mean, this is bad. Norfolk and Southern, uh, they have a lot of explaining to do. They didn't have the chemicals labeled. The, the cloud
child was, you know, it was set on fire to further reduce, you know, some leakage. And it's questionable, should that have happened? And there was a plume above the city. I mean, it goes on and on and on. And our governor, Mike DeWine of Ohio, you know, was on the on the scene pretty quick, as were state officials. Now, I'm not saying that, you know, that there has not been contact by by FEMA uh, whatsoever. I'm not saying that. But you make a an observation that's correct. They just somehow did not get out front on this yeah. when it would have been so easy to do it. And I'm not I'm not sure why, but it um, has certainly stirred a lot of controversy. Okay, 30 seconds. Uh, mm-hmm. Your prediction that Trump will not be the nominee of his party for president of the United States, are you sticking with it? Yes, I said it February a year ago, and I know he announced it, and I still said it after that. I'm sticking with it. He will not be the nominee out of the convention. I say that because he may go all the way to the convention saying he's running, but I, I, either he's going to quit running before that or, um, you know, uh, long before that, or as a the convention proceeds. So I'm going to hold to that prediction. Wow. Okay. That's that's going to be really interesting. So we're going to have to watch this now for months and months. Right. And we'll make a betting pool. Okay. Bob Nay from Washington, as always, thank you very, very much. Thank you so much. Okay. We're going to be back with Ann Wallace-Allen from Seven Days to talk about her story about the state college proposal on libraries and sports. You're listening to Vermont Viewpoint. I'm Kevin Ellis on WDE. We're back. I'm Kevin Ellis. It's WDEV's uh, show, Vermont Viewpoint, and our guest is Ann Wallace-Allen from Seven Days, and she is going to talk to us about the Vermont State College proposal to shut down, clear out the books or whatever about the State College libraries and its shutdown of some of the sports programs and Wallace Allen, welcome to the show. Thanks so much, Kevin. It's great to be here. Okay. So this has been, uh, well, this isn't bubbling beneath the surface. This is a full-blown controversy. It's going on in the legislature, in the news media, and across Vermont. Take us through it. Okay. I think I'll start with the word shut down the libraries because – the, that's where the students and the faculty differ from the administration. Now, the administration wants to remove the books from the libraries and turn them into a, a different type of uh, learning facility where there would be computers, obviously, there would be digitized materials, and there would be some people on hand to help people find what they need and also like a 24-hour chat service. And they take exception to the idea that this means they're going to close the libraries. And now the students and faculty and alumni and others who um, have expressed considerable outrage about this plan are saying, is it still a library? Yes, you're closing the library because a room that does not have any paper books in it is no longer a library. Right. And the reaction of the legislature to this thus far has been... It has been muted, so it is um, not a secret that the Vermont State Colleges have been struggling financially for years, and Vermont has been infamous for on lists um, when it comes to how uh, it funds its state college system. I mean, it's always like a down there in the, like the lowest state funding per capita for the college system, for the state college system. So 
Um, this is not the first time that there's been a crisis related to finding ways to keep the state college system still going while finding ways to save money. I think um, many people will remember when uh, Jeb Spalding, who was then the chancellor, made a suggestion to, I think he was going to close some of the campuses, and uh, there was a complete meltdown in 2020 when he did this, and he ended up uh, resigning. So when the new president was hired last summer, he knew that he was going to be coming into a situation where he'd be asked to make some very difficult decisions. The legislature did give the state college system a lot of money last year, and they also got some of the COVID funding, but they also pledged to cut their expenses by $25 million over five years. And this college idea is uh, one of the ways that they are trying to save money. The president, Parwinder Graywall, says it'll save $600,000 to take out the books and replace them with digital materials. And uh, and President Graywall has faced uh, huge criticism about this uh, from students and faculty. He, he went from campus to campus outlining this plan, and it did not go well. It did not. I mean, people... The, Students and faculty stood up to – he actually went from campus to campus before – on a tour that was planned before this announcement as well and uh, just after the announcement came out so that people only wanted to talk about this topic with him, and that has continued. He's gotten a lot of heat from people on social media, in letters, in the media who think that it will gut the system and it will it will also harm the communities around them that use the libraries. And his response is – at surveys nationally and at uh, the state college system show that very few people check out the, the actual physical reading materials, that most research and reading is done with digitized materials. And his other argument is, I, what do you want me to do here, people? We are trying to survive. And with so many colleges closing in Vermont, you know, uh, there is there is a question about how these institutions can survive. It, it, you know, you, you mentioned the Jeb Spalding thing. It's clear he resigned after he lost probably the support of the board. And I wonder, we had the governor on the show earlier this week and I asked him about this and he, he did not criticize uh, the, the president or the chancellor. He said, uh, they've got a lot of work to do and there might, you know, they could have executed this announcement maybe better, but <clears throat> he did not bail politically on, uh, on this proposal, he's sticking with it. So I, I'm going to be looking to see, looking at the state college board to see whether they stick with this proposal as well, right? I mean, what are the next steps here? Well, the next steps is that they're going to get rid of all the books, Kevin. I mean, there's, nobody <laughs> is saying, okay, we're going to, uh, we're going to take what you said into consideration and change our mind. I mean, they just haven't said that. The trustees are also sticking with this decision. It's it's really unfortunate that it has uh, come to this. I I um, reached out to a uh, to the Association of Research and College Libraries, and they said this is the only uh, case they know of where um, a system has pledged to get rid of all of its printed materials. I should say that after the outcry. Um, the president did relent a little and say, oh, we'll keep, we will keep some materials, especially, you know, because we have to, to comply with the law. Um, some students with disabilities need the printed materials and can't use online materials. But, um, 
No, nobody who is in a position of power has really said, okay, this is clearly we we uh, shouldn't do this. It's, they're still forging ahead and they're still getting a lot of blowback from students and alumni who are saying that, um, you know, that it's a conspiracy of some sort. They've, a lot of people have brought up the specter of Nazi book burning and have said they're just trying to suppress information and, in fact, in a rare uh, response from the trustees, they, uh, Sophie Zadatny, who's the chancellor, actually, she wrote a letter saying, asking people in the Vermont State College community yesterday, asking people to stop uh, comparing this to what the Nazis did. She said it's, that's not helpful and um, it's not going to... Uh, it's not going to advance the conversation any further, and it also indicates a lack of historical knowledge and content and minimizes the horror of the atrocities committed by the Third Reich. So, you know, they do seem to be sticking to their guns. I will say that David Zuckerman, after a big protest in the State House earlier this week, he did say to the students, I think we should take another look at this. Right. It's it's uh, It strikes me, and is as there's culture going on here where – the president says the data shows that people aren't checking out the books. Uh, and, and while that data may be correct and, and therefore the proposal may be correct, um, from a data perspective, culturally, the notion of getting rid of books in a library is, you know, in a country with a first amendment and, and all of our heritage here, I wonder whether Culturally, it's just not doable. Um, yeah, it's it's it does seem like a, a a blow to the concept of higher education to get rid of all the books for sure. That's what, um, and also there's there's always been a lot of um, a lot of encouragement for us to get off of our screens and to stop staring at our screens and you know to stop sitting at a desk in one position scrolling. So. There, you know, there there is something to be said for the idea that maybe students don't need to spend even more time staring at a screen, and that having a book in their hands might be better for them. And the students do say, um, with some justification, that books are used in libraries, books, periodicals, and other materials without being checked out. I mean, right? You know, they. I, I did make a surprise visit, or at least an unannounced visit to. Um, the college up in Linden and NVU Linden, and uh, I walked into the library, and there were actually students reading books there. I, so, you know, for what it's worth, I think they are still using the books, but um, whatever the data says, the, the schools are, are in a financial crisis. And right. uh, I think, if anything, we're going to see other changes that are also going to cause minor earthquakes in the state. Well, and okay, and in the little time we have left, there's also a proposal from the state colleges to do away with many of the sports programs uh, and take them to club sports. And again, while that may be a, a successful money-saving venture, boy, it, it, uh, that, it tugs at the heartstrings of people who played college sports for VTC and Northern Vermont and others. Oh yeah, that that's a very unpopular decision too. And so they're not they're they're not taking away sports altogether, but like the the Johnson the sports program at the Johnson campus of NVU is leaving the NCAA for a smaller um, 
outfit called the United States Collegiate Athletic Association. But right. yeah, VTC is going to offer only club sports. So athletes also came to the protest at the State House this week. And a lot of them told me stories of how they had come to these campuses in order to play sports. Like one guy I talked to had come from Houston to play basketball. And they are all talking about leaving. And the reason that they're talking about leaving, transferring, is because they say all their friends are talking about transferring. So yeah. um, that's, you know, the enrollment is, a, is one way that the colleges make money. And this is a problem. And this is something that the students are talking about a lot. They're saying this this book decision and this athletic decision is going to come back and end up costing the state college system more money because people are going to leave. Uh, and does the... Uh, does the president, do the president and, and the chancellor survive this controversy politically? Uh, well, if you're asking me to predict what's going to happen, I can't, but it's, the president seems to have the full support of, uh, definitely not the faculty and staff unions because they have given him a vote of no confidence, but of the people who hired him, which is the trustees. Um, you know, I'm not, I didn't, I talked to so many people about this um, when I was writing the story, and I don't see lawmakers calling off with his head. I don't see anybody else doing that, really. I just see a lot of sadness and resistance to these two decisions. Yeah. I don't, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a financial crisis. Yeah. That is really causing this pain. Change is hard. Uh, Ann Wallace-Allen from Seven Days, as always, thank you so much for joining us and telling us about this. Thanks, Kevin. Great talking to you. Okay. Uh, we're going to take a break, and we've got Mary and Brian on the line. Please hang on. Uh, we're going to go to open phones next. You're listening to Vermont Viewpoint on WDEV. In decades past, you opened a business, hung out your shingle, and the customers came. Today, hanging out your shingle means creating an engaging website. The modern consumer is using the Internet to find businesses like yours. Are you positioned so you'll rise to the top of their search? Let the Radio Vermont Group Digital Services work with you to make sure you're visible online and to target your marketing to location, demographic, and interest. Learn more at rvgdigital.com. We're back on Vermont Viewpoint, and uh, it's uh, Kevin Ellis, your host. We're going to go right to the phones. We're going to do open phones for the next half an hour. We've got a lot to talk about, and Mary from Randolph Center has been waiting on the phone patiently. Hello, Mary. Hi. Good morning, Kevin. A couple of things. Um, I loved the um, piece you did on the bandit uh, with the heart. And <laughs> I think we could all take a little page out of the, the bandit's book and and do that sort of thing, not on that scale, but do it every day. A little something for somebody to bring a smile to their face, right? Uh, the other thing I'm questioning is I, I'm not clear on why taking the books out of the library and having to add all of the other technology is going to save money. That's a good point, and I don't know the answer, but I'm glad you raised the question. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we've had the chancellor of the state colleges, Sophie Zadotny, on the, on the uh, show, and I've talked to her face-to-face about this. 
Uh, they, they're in a pickle. They've got to save, they've got to cut five million a year for the next five years. And they made a deal really with the governor and the legislature to cut that money, uh, to save the colleges. Uh, and in exchange, the legislature has been, uh, appropriating generous amounts of state dollars, uh, to the colleges in an effort to save them. Uh, and this consolidation of colleges and the getting rid of sports, which are very expensive, and uh, and and the books. Um, now, with regard to the books, yeah, I, I continue to think that it's it's something of a look. Nobody loves books more than me, but I gotta believe that modern day students are not browsing the stacks, reading a manual Kant. But maybe uh, maybe I'm wrong. So, uh, Mary, would you say that we should uh, keep the books? But then, you, when you say keep the books. Then you got to say, where else are we going to cut to save this money? That's the question. Right. But, I mean, they're still going to have to have a librarian. It's going to be monitored. The library is going to be heated and dealt with and all of those things. I, I just don't understand taking the books out, how that uh, saves. I, I don't know where does maybe tuitions go up a percentage. Yeah. Well, they're it, right. And, of course, students and Administrators would say students can't afford that, their families can't afford it, and uh, in a very competitive uh, uh, higher education environment, you can't compete when you raise your tuition uh, where UVM is keeping its tuition where it is. But it's uh, great questions, and we'll continue considering it. Mary, thanks for the call. Thank you. Okay, Brian from Eden. You're on the call. Always good to hear yeah, from Brian. Got, How are you? A few different issues, but now I'm hung up in the book issue here. Uh, Go ahead. Yeah. Um, I think the answer for the colleges here is to just, you know, not to use a cliche, but think outside the box. Be more creative. They have a lot of real estate. Like up here at old Johnson State, they're renting out uh, student married student housing to uh, Smuggler's Notch workers. We yeah. have a housing shortage, like just find different ways to make revenue off what you got. Don't gut your libraries and your sports. That's not going to help. Okay. That's my opinion. I mean, just try to think of other revenue streams that maybe, you know, instead of just raising uh, tuition and cutting programs. Um, I have about 10,000 books that I've collected uh, over the last few years from school libraries are all throwing their books out the whole digital model. And, uh, I, I, it's a trend. Uh, it doesn't save money. Your last caller was absolutely correct because then tech becomes more expensive and the tech, uh, minders become more expensive. Um, the other issue I, I wanted to bring up is, uh, We've had these issues with free speech and people in positions of public power, like police chiefs, principals, being like against the Black Lives Matter flag and whatever gender issues right. at schools. Um, you know, once you take a job in the public trust, a certain thing like ethics kicks in. Your first right amendment. You chose to have that job. You chose to be in that position of public trust. 
you really got to tone it down. You can't be an activist and expect no blowback. I think you're talking about the Northfield police chief that we talked about last yeah, week. Yeah, there's a principal, too, a school principal who got in a similar situation down in central Vermont. Yeah, and the print, the Northfield police chief, and we talked about this on the show, he has announced, uh, he's the guy who, um, uh, the prosecutors in Washington County won't even work with. And, uh, and he's all about the, uh, LGBTQ Black Lives Matter stuff over in Randolph in his private time. He just announced that he's retiring in May. Good. Yeah. He gets three months. Yeah. That's good. Let him retire. I mean, he's been there a long time, but still, once you are in that position, you kind of, it's not like you don't have your rights, but a certain ethic kicks in of having community trust. Yeah. But especially professional trust from the prosecutors. It just makes your job work. Yeah. Now I gotta say, on the state colleges thing. Yeah. Uh, I gotta hand it to the new president and the chancellor. They're, they've been open about this. They haven't hidden. Uh, they were in the legislature yesterday explaining what they're doing. They're not hiding from this. And yeah, it's controversial and yeah, it's emotional. I got to give them credit for at least stepping up to the plate and saying, this is our proposal. We back it. We support it. And, uh, you know, we're, we're not going to back down now. They may change their minds, but, but I give them credit for stepping out in front and, and, uh, you know, standing up for the proposal. Well, I'll be down there at Johnson collecting all the books I can carry. Well, I'll tell you, as a communications consultant, I can't think this, – this came to me about four in the morning this morning. The image of a Caseller dumpster uh, being uh, loaded yeah. off at the back of a, of a state college library and the books being going uh, – you know, being dumped in there, that is probably the worst PR image that I can possibly think yeah. of because uh, there's going to be a lot of jewels in those, in oh, those yeah. stacks, right? I know they objected to the Nazi metaphor, but it, it's just more subtle. It's whatever. Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, I, I just read a book. I'll be brief. I just read a book about the 1920s, and it's pretty amazing how how many, like, immigration, everything is it's so similar. The change in technology, the shock to, you know, American society going from the farm to you know, urban living and whatnot, having, you know, products, electricity, all that stuff. It's it's very similar to now. And it's amazing because when they talk about stuff like the KKK in 1924, you know, being like a proud civic organization, right? We're actually in a worse situation with people like Trump as far as it's the same issues and, and the way they talk about it in these books is we're so far beyond that. Imagine how that was. And we're actually further right in larger numbers than we were then. It, it's really creepy. But it's a, that's a bigger issue. It, it, a bigger issue and more complicated issue. You're right. Uh, but yeah. you know what? Serious issue for serious people. And that's what we do on Vermont Viewpoint. Yep. Hey, Brian, yeah, thank thanks for the so call. Much. Yeah, the phantom thing was great. Oh, so, good. Yeah, I, you know, it's funny. The, uh, 
It's just that my phone blew up uh, with texts and the people were on the line and calling in. And I, there's something about the phantom thing that just warms people's hearts, especially on a day like this. Yeah. All right. Well, take care. Thanks a lot for calling. Yep. Bye. We're going to take a break. Oh, we've got Fred on the line, so we'll go. Fred, uh, i got to hurry because i got to take a break, but go ahead. Oh, uh Let's see, I'm reading Arnhem, and that was a famous battle during World War II, subtitled Battle of the Bridges, and American idiom came from that. It, I bet you don't know what it is. I don't. I'll tell you anyway. Looks like that's a bridge too far. <laughs> How many times have you said that? A bridge too far. Fred, thank you yeah, for the call. Uh, always re- can rely on Fred to for a World War II era analogy that makes us think. Thank you very much. We're going to take a break, uh, and then we're going to come back and do uh, open phones for another few minutes, and then I have an obituary to talk about, about a dear friend and uh, great human being. We'll get to that at the end of the show. Uh, you're listening to Vermont Viewpoint. I'm Kevin Ellis on WDEV. We're back on the phones at VT Viewpoint. I'm Kevin Ellis. Uh, remember that I do this show on Wednesdays and Fridays, so mark it on your calendar, 9 to 11, Destination Live Radio at WDEV, the friendly pioneer. Our phone lines are open. I want to just say one more thing about the State College uh, uh, situation. Watch this one closely because it is the anatomy of a of a controversial issue. Uh, this is the stuff you see on CNN and MSNBC and Fox all the time. You know, somebody makes a proposal and then uh, are forced to back off for political reasons. The state colleges are not backing off. And here's what to watch for. Uh, if you see the governor weaken on this and throw uh, the state colleges under the bus and say that they should reverse themselves, and if the board of the state colleges starts retreating and saying that, we probably didn't execute this very well, and maybe we do need the books and sports. Um, but uh, then then you're going to see uh, things change on this proposal. But if you're going to say that you got to keep the books and sports, uh, you have you, you have a responsibility to say, okay, where else are you going to save the five million a year over the next? Uh, 25 million over five years, five million a year. Where else would you cut to get those savings? Or do you want to raise tuition? Or will the legislature give more money? It's not responsible for a legislator to bang on the state colleges for this while at the same time not giving them the money to survive. Uh, it's complicated. It's hard. There are really good people working on this, and it'll be really interesting to see where it comes out. As I said, from a PR standpoint, there is nothing worse, and everybody has a phone now. And when they roll that dumpster up to the back of one of those colleges and start dumping start dumping books in a dumpster, that's a problem. Uh, and they've got to figure out how to do this. Suggestion, uh, have a yard sale. Uh, you know, make a little money out of this. But uh, don't dump those books in a dumpster. Uh Reading junkies like me will be lining up at the back door uh, to get deals on their favorite copy of John Locke's uh, books or, uh, 
you know, or even, you know, bad novels. There's, there's a marketplace for this stuff. Okay. Uh, Congresswoman Becca Ballant has confirmed through her campaign manager that she is fully cooperating with the U.S. Attorney's investigation of Sam Bankman Freed and FTX and their shady contributions to, uh, Balance campaign and the campaigns of many others. Um, uh, Natalie Silver, uh, her Balance campaign manager, confirmed this uh, while repeating the fact that they never, their campaign never communicated with FTX or Sam Bankman-Fried. They are, and this is the question that's been hovering over this campaign, which is, what is the Balance campaign going to do with the money that they got from? Bankman Freed, FTX, and other shady dealers. Natalie Silver confirmed that they are keeping it in an escrowed account and waiting for the U.S. attorney to advise them on where to send the money, and they are ready to send it. But uh, this is a, a question that's been hovering out there, and it's now been answered. They've kept the money, but they haven't spent it, and they're waiting for the U.S. attorney's investigation to Tell them where, who to return the money to. So, uh, that's pretty interesting. Uh, our phones are lighting up. I gotta go to them. Uh, Brady, you're on the line. Welcome to the show. Kevin, Brady Farkas here. On to be on this side of the conversation. Go ahead. Uh, I want to talk about the sports thing, of course, because that's what I, that's what uh, I'm caring about here. Good stuff with Ann Allen. My question is to you, is that, NBU Johnson specifically, I'll just start with them, has been half in on sports for a long time. Part-time coaches, diminishing numbers, low low turnout on teams. What if they went the other way? What if they paid their coaches full-time, actually invested in sports, and used it as a true enrollment booster? It's hard to fill out rosters. And, you know, I get it. Sports aren't worth it to them right now because – they don't have full teams, et cetera. But what if they went the other way and actually invested in it and used it as a true recruiting tool for the university? So you're talking about uh, – let me reach for an analogy. God, it's great to get Brady Farkas on the show. How about that, Danny? Um, uh, so you're talking about maybe like the Castleton, what they did with football, or the UConn uh, going to D1 football many years ago. Yeah, I mean, I just think, you know – Sources tell me, ha, 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 that, you know, NBU Johnson particularly has not been invested, right? And so, as I understand it, they're not even NCAA compliant on a lot of things because they don't have big enough roster sizes to be NCAA compliant. So, at this juncture, it is not worth it for them to have sports. I get that. But it's kind of a chicken or the egg thing. Yeah. So, if, if they went the other way and actually invested, had full-time coaches, who could actually go out and dedicate their time to recruiting and bringing people into the programs and bringing people into the state. And now you have a, you know, a basketball roster that has a full 15 instead of 12, a soccer roster that has a full 25 instead of 17 or whatever. You bring in much more money in tuition dollars, which would help the school, which would increase room and board and people living on campus. And that seems, I don't know that it's going to make up all of the $5 million a year you're talking about. I'm sure it's not. You're right. Something else would have to be cut. But you can get, I, I think you can help yourself by investing in sports rather than cutting it and getting more and more tuition. Well, and, and you're right. Um, 
you can create a successful program pretty darn fast if you go get a name coach who can recruit uh, and you you get some wins under your belts and suddenly you're in the paper and people want to go to your institution. I mean, and that's tougher at Division Three, right? I mean, I understand that way of thinking from Division One, but I can tell you that I worked at a Division Three school a number of years ago, and look, I didn't love this model, but it did work for them. They, they viewed athletics as a means to getting students to the school. So in a lot of cases, they overfilled rosters. I'm not a proponent of doing that because I don't think that that services the kids well who you're supposed to be caring about. But if you can at least get your rosters to the full limit and have coaches that are there talking about you in the community and bringing kids in, you get more tuition, more enrollment, more people. You know, Ann mentions a kid from Houston playing basketball. More people like that living on campus instead of being commuters. And now you are talking about more rep, more money and revenue into the school. They seem to be in this position probably because they in part created it. They haven't cared about sports for a long time, so therefore it's become not worth it for them to keep. If they cared about it, there would be an opportunity to drive some of the things that are issues for them, like revenue and enrollment. Oh, man, we're going we're gonna to have to have a full show on this. The Brady and Kevin show. Hey, Brady, <laughs> thanks for the call. That's a great suggestions. Thanks, Kevin. I'll be talking about it on my show tonight. Thanks for the idea. Okay. Uh, Ruth from Morrisville, I've got 30 seconds. Go ahead. Oh, um, I'm calling about the library part of the situation. You know, people might look at it a little differently if they had put out to the library communities, what do you value most? What do you think should be cut back on? Their survey which was very limited, had very limited response, did yeah. not address those kind of things. And they have not told us all our buildings are as energy efficient as they can be. There's no sense putting money into that. We can't cut back our, our heating, our cooling. They haven't told us that we've cut back the most we can on who knows, plowing the sidewalks in the winter, Right. you know. They have not put out so people can compare what it, what they're now spending money on. They just said, okay, we're going to cut back these two things. Yeah. Well, it's a, <clears throat> it's a tough one. And as always, we it, say, it as, is. yeah, well, Ruth, thank you for the call. Uh, we've got to go. Well, uh, yes, but we, we also are not addressing what people are saying they need and value about a physical library. Yeah, that's They're a good just point. Saying, this is where we are. This is what we're going to do. Ignore everything. Yeah. So, no greater place in the world than a real library. Uh, Ruth, thank you for the call. Uh, I got to go. We, we were going to read the obituary of a great Vermonter and Austrian, Anne Henrik, uh, my dear old friend of mine. Uh, we will get to that on the next show. That's our show for today. You can email me at vtviewpoint at radiovermont.com. This is a live show that becomes a podcast where you can listen on your own time at wdevradio.com. Click on the podcast button and please like us and recommend us to others. You can find me at kevinkellis.com and on Twitter, Ellis at ellis52k. I'll be back Wednesday to talk about all of these issues and so much more. Our show is directed, produced, engineered, managed by the master, Danny McGivrigan, who did not know about the Montpelier Phantom.
Thank you so much for joining us. I'm Kevin Ellis, and we'll see you right back here Wednesday on Vermont Viewpoint, live radio on the friendly pioneer WDEV.